0: Good morning. Okay, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. In last week's study, we saw very clearly that the Lord had promised to send the Holy Spirit. And that when he would send the Holy Spirit, that he would make his disciples and apostles, witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And you know... They needed to do one thing that we have such a difficult time doing. They needed to wait. They needed to wait for God to give them what they needed to be the people that God had called them to be. Now, you all know this, it's very difficult to wait. But that's exactly what God called them to do. And what we're going to see today is the one event that was recorded between Jesus' promise and his ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I think what you'll see is Peter standing up and doing something that God hadn't called him to do. He certainly wasn't waiting to get things started. He started to jump in, as Peter was so prone to do, with both feet. And I think the lesson, the overwhelming lesson for us today is a very simple one. When God says, wait, wait. When God says wait, we what? Wait. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us to wait on you, to look to you and to look to your word, that you might speak to our hearts, to to be in prayer that we might share our hearts with you and receive your word, to be in fellowship that we might encourage one another and in service to one another, Lord, in praise and worship of you. But may we learn to wait on you And to not take things in our own hands at all. May we be filled with your spirit and empowered and directed by your spirit to do your work. And may we not move, not an inch, until you call us to do so. Lord, we ask that you would do this work in our hearts this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I don't want to beat up on Peter too much today. Because all of us have fallen prone to that kind of attack where... God tells us to do something or maybe nothing, and we decide to do something. And almost every single time God has called me to do nothing and I do something, it turns out to be a disaster. Now, I'm not going to say that what happened here was a disaster, but it certainly didn't amount to anything that Peter was trying to accomplish. It starts in verse 12 of chapter 1. And we sort of set the stage here. Jesus has just ascended into heaven. And we read in verses 12 through 14 that then they, that is the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. And those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew. James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all join together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers, that it's Jesus's brothers. Now, so we set the stage, they're, they're doing pretty much exactly what they should be at this point. If we were to stop and skip over verses 15 to the rest of the chapter, there would be much or not much to say, not much to comment on. But they had returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives after Jesus had ascended into heaven. Now, the Mount of Olives was in the vicinity of Bethany. It was east of Jerusalem, or is east of Jerusalem, about uh, three-quarters of a mile away, very close. And they returned to the upper room in the temple precinct where they had been staying. They were were all, as we know, because Luke told us at the end of his gospel, Luke is also the writer of the book of Acts, that they were all worshiping Jesus as they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. That They stayed continually at the temple praising God. So yes, they're waiting on the Lord. You know, when you think of waiting on the Lord, you probably think of doing nothing. That wouldn't be correct. Now, that's not doing anything that God hasn't called you to do. But what has God called you to do? What has God called us to do? Well, I think they got it down. They were worshiping Jesus with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. There's certainly no reason they couldn't do that. In fact, they were commanded to do that. That, that's, That's the heart of a worshiper towards God. They really were doing what a person who's waiting on God should do, and that is praising God, worshiping God, seeking God. I'm going to say something because... After 30 some odd years, I can say this. No good comes of rushing into ministry. No good comes of rushing into ministry. The best ministry is the one that is born out of prayer, praise, and devotion to God. I'm going to go so far as to say, if you're thinking about doing something for God, stop right there. Stop thinking about it. Praise God, worship God, seek God, draw near to him, become the worshiper that he's designed you to be, allow your heart to be filled with joy, stay in that place until you hear God's voice so clearly that to stay put and do nothing would be sin. How about that? Does that sound like a procrastinator? Because it's not a procrastinator. A person who has waited on the Lord for direction and empowerment is a person who, when they step out to do something, wastes no time. I'm very into efficiency. Efficiency and movement. If I've got to bend down to pick up something, I might wait. Now I'm getting older, so I might wait until I drop something else. Get two things at once. I'm into efficiency. I, I don't want to do something. I hate doing things twice. You know, when I take care of something and I check it off my list, I'm a notorious list checker, and it comes off my list. I think, ah, oh, I feel so good. You know, it's great. And then something happens. and Someone will call me, or it comes back. The email comes back, or it, it's not finished. I get angry because wait a minute, I took care of this. I hate doing things twice. I'd rather do ten things once than one thing twice. I am very much into efficiency, and so is God. So is the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want you running around in circles like a chicken without your head. Sadly, brothers and sisters, some very well-meaning, good-natured, wonderful, Christ-loving people over the years have stepped out to do things for God and, and, and really done a disservice to the ministry and to themselves because they weren't waiting on God's direction, His empowerment. They really did take things in their own hands. Okay, we don't want to do that. We know that. They weren't at this point. And oh, we love Peter. And by the way, you know, he's the hero of the rest of this book. But for now, he hasn't been filled with the Spirit. And you're going to see a marked difference in the person that's filled with the Holy Spirit and the person who's not. I like to look at it this way. There's a spiritual work and a fleshly work. And the work of flesh brings fleshly results. The work of the Spirit brings spiritual results. So which do you want? What would you like to see accomplished in and through your life? A work of God's spirit or a work of your flesh? By the way, works of the flesh are very appealing to us. They tend to to check all the boxes. They they tend to meet our fleshly needs. They they tend to get our attention. We kind of like them a lot. Actually, they're a lot of fun until they're not. Until all of a sudden this ministry that you've created or this church that you've planted or this movement that you're a part of, now all of a sudden needs, needs power. Where's that power going to come from if it's not the Holy Spirit? You know where it's going to come from? You. And you don't, you don't have the power. And so many people burn out because they have been running on their own power. And you can do that for a while. Not very long, but you can do that for a while until you can't. So what I want to encourage you today to realize is that this is a lesson for us in waiting on God. Now, the 11 remaining apostles were present in the upper room, were given all of their names, and this is one of four full lists of the apostles in the Gospels and the book of Acts. And as we studied Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I went over these men's lives individually, so I'm not going to do that today. But let me say this, each of them have their own story. Each of them have their own calling, each of them have their own anointing, and they're all wonderful examples of God's grace. But it wasn't just the apostles who were in constant prayer, Uh, they were in prayer along with Jesus' disciples and his family. Now, I find that interesting because they're all gathered together as family, as one family, and there was the women. We're told there that, in verse 14, the women were there. Now, why is that important? Because a lot of people, when they watch a Jesus film, or they think about the apostles, or they look at the Last Supper, uh, the, the, the fresco, or, or pictures that are depicting Jesus' life and ministry, they see a lot of men led by a man, and they don't really see much about women. And I want to say this, that women were as just a, as much a part, if not more a part, of Jesus' ministry at times than others. They really were. In fact, these were the women that considered it a joy to care for his needs. Jesus had many women disciples, and they were bold in their commitment to Jesus. In fact, they had followed Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem from Galilee, just like the men. They had followed Jesus as he was led out of the city to be crucified. They were there. The apostles were not, at least most of them. They had stood near the cross during Jesus' crucifixion. They had followed Joseph of Arimathea and saw the tomb and how Jesus' body had been laid in it. They watched as the tomb was sealed. They had gone home to prepare spices and perfumes before the Sabbath. They had arrived at the tomb very early in the morning on the first day of the week. Nowhere in any of those accounts was one of the disciples or apostles present. They had discovered that the stone had been rolled away. They had seen an angel when they arrived at the tomb. This all happened to them, and they're there in the upper room. They entered the tomb. They couldn't find Jesus' body. They encountered angels inside the tomb. And then they were commissioned as messengers of the resurrection as well. In fact, before the men. So why do I say that? Just to give you a perspective that this gospel message is to be preached by all men and women, followers of Christ. Amen? Now also Jesus' mother Mary was there. She was among the disciples. Now look, let's talk about Mary for just a minute because she clearly knew that she had given birth to the Son of God. You can't read Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2 without knowing that she knew. And she had approached Jesus, you'll remember, when they ran out of wine at the wedding in Cana in John 2, uh, she knew Jesus was and is the Son of God. She knew that he had the power to do all things. She knew that, and it's obvious. There were times where she didn't approve of his behavior, but she stood near the cross during his crucifixion. And when I say she didn't approve of his behavior, she didn't want anything bad to happen to him. She cautioned him against doing things that might get himself in trouble. You understand that. You all, I assume most of you have moms, right? So you know what? The thing is, Jesus at that point asked his cousin John to care for her after his death. And so she's in the care of John. Where's John? In the upper room. Where's Mary? With John in the upper room. And so, is his, so are his brothers so his family is there. Now, Jesus's brothers are interesting because they were among the disciples and they became disciples. In fact, one of them, James, became an apostle. Joseph and Mary had other children together after the birth of Jesus. I know that freaks some people out. If you look at the command, Mary was supposed to remain separate from Joseph until after the child was born. And after that, they lived as any married couple. They had a family, and there were other children. They're mentioned in the Gospels. I'll point out Matthew 13, 55, where we are told they had four sons. We're even given their names. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And that Judas is the Judas who's known for writing the book of Jude. And James is the one who wrote the book of James. Okay, so, yeah, important people in the early church... They also had at least three daughters because when they talk about his daughters, they say all of his sisters, or excuse me, uh, Jesus's sisters, Joseph and Mary's daughters. Uh, though we don't know their names, when it speaks of Joseph and Mary's daughters, uh, they say all of his, all of all their daughters, or all of Jesus's sisters. So we know that there were more than two. We don't know how many, and we don't know their names. But Jesus's brothers did not believe that he was the son of God before his resurrection. That we're specifically told. In John's gospel. In fact, there was a moment where they tried to take him into custody for fear that he had lost his mind. And what what they mean by that is he was saying things and doing things that would get himself killed, or at least thrown in prison, especially after what happened to John, his cousin. So his very caring and loving brothers and mom decided to intervene and try to get him out of the limelight. Of course, they were wrong to do that, but it came from a place of love. You understand? They didn't hate Jesus. They were concerned about him. They didn't understand. And the brothers didn't believe that he was the son of God. So they had tried to take him into custody. Of course, they they didn't. And they didn't approve of his behavior at times. But they loved their brother. Mary loved her son. Now they know and understand that he's not just their family member, but the son of God. And in fact, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, that Jesus appeared to his brother James after his resurrection, probably his oldest brother. He appeared to him after his resurrection. Why would that be important? James went on to become one of the pillars of the church and the writer of the book of James. So that was an important moment. And I'm not sure what happened. We're not told. We're just told that as the resurrected Christ, he appeared to James. I believe Later on, when Jesus appeared to over 500 at one time, also recorded in First Corinthians, that his other brothers were there. They had all seen the risen Christ. So having seen him, they believed. Now, it's at this moment when all of these very loving people, very wonderful saints, are gathered together praising God, worshiping God, doing exactly what Jesus told them to do, that Peter decides something needs to be done. I'm not sure if it's because he wanted to round out the number 11 to 12 apostles or because he felt that something had to be done or because he felt, well, Jesus did say I was supposed to lead this bunch. I, I better put out some type of an executive order. I better do something. I'm not sure what motivated Peter, but we've seen Peter before say exactly what he's thinking and do exactly what he wants to do without thinking. And I think this is another example. In fact, I want to read verses uh, 15 through 17 to show you where Peter's mind is. Now, Peter's not a bad person. And, and there are, a lot of people who start ministries and try to do a work for God, are, they're not bad people. Some are selfishly motivated. But Peter's not a bad person. He's just doing something that he thinks needs to be done and not what God told him he needed to do. And so here's what we read in verse 15. In those days, that is during that time period between the ascension and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, about a 10-day period, in those days Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Now, so far, he hasn't said anything radical. He's just basically said, well, this is what happened. That's his premise for what happens next or what he recommends or proposes next. But he starts with a statement more than anything else. We know that he's, he's about to suggest that they choose a new apostle to replace Judas Iscariot. But before he gets there, With these 120 gathered together, he speaks to them because he believed that the scripture had predicted, and it had, it had predicted Judas Iscariot's death for his betrayal of Jesus. Now, it's only been a few days, and and the wounds haven't healed in their hearts toward the betrayal or toward Judas for his betrayal against them and against Jesus. Peter believed that the Holy Spirit had spoken through David about Judas, and indeed he had. And Peter acknowledged that Judas had been chosen by Jesus to be one of his apostles, which he had been chosen. He had been chosen. A lot of people think, well, he was kind of a false apostle. No, he was a real apostle. He was chosen by Jesus. He was given all of the power that the other apostles were given, the anointing, the calling. But he took into his own hands the entire situation of Jesus' betrayal. And he gave his heart over to Satan, as we'll see. A little different than what Peter's about to do. But here we we know that that's all Peter's saying at this point. Well, we know what happened to Judas. We we know that Judas was chosen by Jesus, but we know that he betrayed Jesus. And and David predicted it would happen. and, And indeed, we believe that's true. However, now we're given a little parentheses. This isn't something that Peter said. This is something that Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, inserts in his text. It's a parenthetical section. So we'll be able to catch up with what happened to Judas. Have you ever watched a film or a movie or a television series and something had happened, they haven't really described it. And then the screen gets a little fuzzy, the lighting changes. And now you see a flashback of something that took place sometime in the past. And you know that that's where you're at. You're in the past. Well, this is exactly what we learn. Verses 18 through 19, a little gruesome for some of the young people here today. It says, with the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. And everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field, in their language, Akeldama, which is the field of blood. That's pretty gruesome. But I imagine that when people told the gospel story, when they, when they shared the ministry of Jesus, even when the apostles would preach, when they got to Judas's betrayal of Jesus, I imagine the tone changed. When they spoke of Judas, when John wrote about Judas, it's pretty clear that they pointed out some things like no less than five times. John talks about he was a thief, he was wicked, he was possessed. They don't have very flattering things to say about Judas. In fact, has anyone ever met a child named Judas? Have we ever had a baby dedication? Bring little baby Judas up to the... No. I think names like Judas and Adolf are off the table. I don't think that's going to happen anymore. I really don't. So you might say Jude, but Judas, I don't think so. In fact, when you look at the other Judases in the Bible, the book of Jude is Jesus' half-brother Judas. And when they mention the other Judas, because how would you have liked to have been the other Judas? There's 12 Then there's Judas Iscariot. And then there's another Judas who's called the son of James. Always Judas, the son of James. Don't get him confused with the other Judas. How would you like to be that Judas? (gasps) You're Judas? No, 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 no. Son of James. Son of James. Not Iscariot. In fact, here's what happened to him. Verses 18 through 19. So I think we know that when they spoke of him, when they spoke about him, when things were written about him, it's never flattering. He's always the villain of the story. Okay? So what we learn here is that Luke leaves this portion in here, or puts this portion in here, so we'll know what Judas Iscariot's fate was after his betrayal of Jesus. We have to see what happened to the bad guy, right? So Judas hung himself after Jesus was sentenced to death by the Sanhedrin. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verses 1 through 10, tell us exactly what happened. But here's the background. Satan had possessed Judas and prompted him, prompted him to betray Jesus. Judas had agreed to betray Jesus to the chief priests, and he did so for 30 silver coins. 30 silver coins. It wasn't just for the money, but 30 silver coins. Judas was seized with remorse, we're told, when he realized that they had sentenced Jesus to death, which tells us that he was deceived by Satan into thinking that it was a good thing for him to betray Jesus. Apparently, he didn't think that he would be sentenced to death. You can speculate what the motive was on the part of Judas, but that's a fruitless endeavor. I don't like to get into the mind of a serial killer. There are a lot of shows now where they, you know, they want to get into the mind of the serial killer, figure out how that person thinks. I don't want to. And I don't want to get in the mind of Judas because he was possessed by Satan. You give your heart over to Satan, you may think all kinds of crazy things. Whatever he was thinking... After he realized what happened, we're told he was seized with remorse. Not surprisingly. So, Judas returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders of the people, and he publicly confessed to them that he had sinned by betraying Jesus. That sounds a lot like repentance to me. And if it had ended there, if Judas had truly repented, who knows how the story would have ended for Judas, but it doesn't seem to be a true and sincere repentance because godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. But worldly sorrow brings death, the scripture says in First Corinthians. So what we do know is he was sorry and upset and remorseful, but apparently not truly repentant, even though he publicly confessed to them that he had sinned by doing this thing. That is, He was sorry because it didn't work out the way he wanted it to. The chief priests refused to change Jesus' sentence, and they quickly dismissed Judas. Judas was so distraught by his betrayal of Jesus that he took his own life, and that goes to show you that he really, truly did not believe that he could be forgiven. Satan had twisted this man's heart and mind. So he hung himself, and he died a gruesome death, Shortly after Jesus was sent to Pilate, I don't think he was around to even hear about the resurrection. I think he was dead long before that. He fell headlong, his body burst open, and all of his intestines spilled out. So pretty graphic. Whatever he did, he did it in such a way that it was a gruesome, miserable, awful, tragic death. So then the chief priests, they used the 30 silver coins to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is, Well, let's buy the field and let's use it as a place to bury people we don't want buried next to us. They recognized that this was blood money. They knew it. And so they refused to take it back. The field that they purchased would be used to bury unclean Gentiles. People they they hated and despised. So that goes to show you what they thought of the field. It was called the field of blood because it was purchased with blood money. Clearly... Everyone in Jerusalem eventually heard all about Judas' betrayal of Jesus, and this was the story that was told. And then Peter jumps back in. We have that little section, so we know what happened to Judas. Now, Peter has just made the case that they, they knew that the Scriptures talked about Judas. It wasn't a surprise that Jesus was betrayed by Judas. It was all according to plan. That's what Peter has said. Well, what he's about to suggest he believes is God's plan as well. I beg to differ, but here's what happens. We pick it up then in verse 20. For Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms. May his place be uh, deserted, and let there be no one to dwell in it, quoting from Psalm 69, verse 25. And may another take his place of leadership, quoting from Psalms 109, verse 8. Now, the first psalm, Psalm 69, verse 25, he quotes as a prediction of Judas Iscariot's death for his betrayal of Jesus. Now, look at it again. May his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. It's pretty vague. Pretty vague. I I don't know that, that I would have looked at that and thought, oh, he's talking about Judas. But that happens sometimes. Scriptures can be a little vague. But let me suggest to you, That when you look at the original interpretation of this, David, who wrote the psalm, was crying out to the Lord to destroy those that hated him and were seeking to destroy him. Is it any wonder why that verse would be on his heart when he's thinking about Judas? He's thinking, well, God destroyed him. That's what David prayed for, for his enemies, and that's what we saw happen to Judas. So you understand why he came to that verse, You understand, because the original meeting had everything to do with the Lord destroying those that that hated him and were seeking to destroy him. So in that sense, it applies. But he's using it now as a proposal or as justification for replacing Judas. And I don't know that you can go that far. In fact, you might find this interesting. Jesus also quoted this same verse to predict the destruction of Jerusalem for their wickedness. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, verse 38. So this wasn't a verse that hadn't been quoted before and applied to other circumstances. But Peter's whole point is saying, oh, look, David said that the enemies, his enemies, the enemies of God would be destroyed. And indeed, Judas was destroyed. OK, all right, we're with you so far. And then he goes another step. Because, you see, Peter's quoting this verse, yes, to describe the betrayal and death of Judas. But it's a questionable thing to take this verse and use it as justification to do something, especially when the Lord had told them to wait. Have you ever done that? Have you ever wanted to do something? And so you do one of these, uh, you go through your Bible and wherever I put my finger, that's what I'm going to do. Until you get to the verse that says, go out and hang yourself. <laughs> he said, so let me try again. Let me try again. You find another one. What thou do is do doest is quickly. You see, you, you can't take that approach. It's not the magic eight ball. Remember the magic eight ball? I think that thing may still be around. I think I saw it in one of these novelty shops. You take the magic eight ball. Should I take the job? You should do it. And you're like, oh, that's it. You know, the, the Bible is not the magic eight ball. They actually came out with a pink one years later called the magic date ball. Should I go out with them? You know, the magic date ball. I thought that was cute. Too many people take that kind of approach to seeking God's will. The magic eight ball or the magic date ball. L- listen, I think what Peter's doing here is he's, he's feeling very strongly. He finds this verse that, that accurately tells the truth about the enemies of God. He begins now to apply it. Now he's on a roll, you know? Because Jesus' disciples clearly despised Judas for his wickedness. They wanted justice. They probably felt that the miserable end he got wasn't even good enough. And as I've said, John exposed Judas's wickedness in his gospel no less than five times when he wrote, so that you know they felt strongly. And by the way, John wrote that like decades later. That wound never healed. I don't believe that wound ever healed. Betrayal, the wounds of betrayal seldom heal. So then Peter quotes Psalms 109 verse 8. He's on a roll. May another take his place of leadership. Now that, that's what he's been working up to. The other verse is just kind of like, you know, yeah, David said this, and then he quotes it. And you could almost say, okay, Peter, I see where you're going with this. And then he says, may another take his place of leadership. Quoting from Psalm 109 verse 8, to support replacing Judas Iscariot with someone else. Now, what you need to know, what we need to remember, because we studied this a few months ago, is that in Psalm Psalm 109 verse 8, David was actually recalling the curses that wicked and deceitful men had called down, upon him. He's recalling the, the, his enemies calling down curses on him. So just keep this in mind. David is just simply saying, these are the things that they said about me. May another take his place of leadership. In other words, we want him to die because we want a new king. Now think about the stretch there. Okay, we understand the application. That's the true application. But Peter's, you know, his, his judgment might be a little clouded. He's feeling strongly about what Judas had done. And, and he, he thinks like the enemies of David now. He thinks, well, let's just replace him. He's gone. Let's get a new person in his place. You understand the emotion behind it. You understand where he's coming from. But can you really justify this action? David's enemies wanted him to die. They wanted for someone else to take his position of authority. Judas had died. Peter decides, well, this verse is good enough to make my point. We need to get a new apostle. Peter's quoting of this verse to support replacing Judas as an apostle is also questionable. And this will happen if you don't do what God has told you to do and you start to do something other than what he told you to do. He told them to wait. Now Peter is ready to put the job posting on Indeed. You understand what's happening here? We're guilty of this all the time. I am, you are, we all are. We, we can't just sit still. We've got nervous energy. Now, we all know about that going back just about a year ago. We know what it is to be cooped up and, oh, what am I going to do? 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 I suspect that there was a lot of wasted energy this last year. Doing things that maybe we shouldn't have gotten involved in. Maybe we... Gave ourselves over to things that are unhealthy or self-destructive. Or very few people, I think, this last year, uh, can say, "Well, no, I did everything I thought I was supposed to do, and I felt the Lord was calling me to do." All of us had those moments of, like, "Oh, I don't know, maybe I'll watch the entire Lord of the Rings series with the Hobbit as the prequel, extended versions, of course." <laughs> I've got a couple of days. There is the Star Wars films. There's nine of them now. Well. There's extras as well, most of them not worth watching, but I'll watch all of them. I think we can waste a lot of time doing things because we don't know what else to do when God has called us to wait. All right, back to our account. So, Jesus had not given him any instructions concerning replacing Judas, by the way. Last time I checked, his last words were, (laughs) But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And before that, he said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Okay. Peter felt it was necessary that they act in order to fulfill scripture. Well, here's what happens. Verses 21 through 22 therefore there's your conclusion what's a therefore therefore well it's there so that that person can come to their conclusion of their argument therefore it is necessary that's that's a reach necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the lord jesus went in and out among us beginning with john's baptism to the time when jesus was taken up from us For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Okay, that's what Peter was working up toward. Peter believed it was necessary for Jesus' disciples to choose a new apostle immediately. Not wait, immediately. Even though if they chose someone, they weren't going to do anything until the Holy Spirit came down anyway, okay? But I want you to know what a work of the flesh looks like. Check this out. Peter limited the candidates to men who had been disciples throughout Jesus' entire ministry. Who gave him that idea? Peter defined Jesus' ministry as beginning with his baptism and ending with his ascension. But Jesus' ministry was not over. It was about to begin in earnest when the Holy Spirit would come upon them. Peter insisted that this was required for a man to witness with them of Jesus' resurrection. Oh really, why? Why? And Peter's decision to choose a new apostle was clearly questionable. Jesus had not said that it was necessary to replace Judas immediately. Jesus had not given them requirements for a man to be an apostle. You know, we get in trouble when we, when we, we get into trouble when we start to say, well, in order to be this, you got to be that. In order to be an elder, there are requirements in the scriptures for an elder and a deacon and a pastor. But when we step outside of those, well, you have to have a master's degree. I didn't see that, did you? He hadn't given them requirements for a man to be an apostle. The Holy Spirit never limited the number of apostles to 12 either. The Holy Spirit would later choose Paul, James, even Barnabas to be apostles. Maybe even more. So where Peter's going with this, he, he's going with a program that he's developed with requirements he's written so that he can accomplish what he thinks needs to be done. A clear and deliberate work of the flesh. Now, I'm not beating up on Peter. I understand where he's at. I get it. But Jesus said, wait. And in verses 23 through 26, here's what they do. This is really, this will seal the deal. If you have any disagreement with me, when they get to this part, you'll see that what I'm saying is true. In verse 23, so, I guess they like the idea. They propose two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias, And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Insert the word hell. Then they cast lots. That is, they rolled dice. They randomly determined. They cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. Oh, lucky day. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Now, listen, they love Jesus. We love Jesus. But this is how ridiculous it is when we think we know better than what Jesus told us to do. Look, Jesus' disciples perfectly chose Matthias to replace Judas. They proposed, first of all, just two men. No women, two men. They just decided these two men, these were the guys, or one of these two. Let's give God a choice. They proposed just two of these men who met Peter's requirements. Remember the requirements that Peter mentioned. They were his. And then they prayed for the Lord to show them which of these two men the Lord had chosen. Notice they relied on their own hearts. (gasps) That's when you know you're in the middle of a work of the flesh. When you say something like this, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Yeah, that it's deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? You don't know your own heart. God knows your heart. You don't know your heart. Your heart is wicked. Never do things from the heart. A very wise pastor said to me one time, never be motivated by compassion. What? Yeah, never be motivated by compassion. Have compassion, but be motivated by the Spirit of the Lord. Well, anyway. They relied on their own hearts to discern who would become the next apostle. And they mentioned that Judas had resigned his position to go where he belongs. Again, a little... You know, we don't like Judas very much, and I understand why. Then they cast lots to randomly determine which of these two men would replace Judas. Well, we know it's one of these two because we know our hearts. Uh, so, Lord, we're going to give you an opportunity as we roll these dice, as we you know, cast these lots, to tell us which of these two men are the, is the one that you chose. Now, I'm just going to point out that when Jesus chose the twelve, we're told in Luke's gospel, he went up to a mountain, and prayed, and he prayed all night. Can I just make an an encouraging comment, hopefully? When you're going to make a decision, don't cast lots. Don't don't use the magic eight ball. You might be much better to just pray all night. You'd be much better off if you just prayed and sought God and waited for God to tell you what to do than to take matters in your own hands. Nothing terrible happened except nothing happened a waste of energy, inefficiency, the kinds of things that we can avoid if we seek God and his will. Perhaps they should have done the last thing that Jesus told them to do. Wait. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this encouraging word today. We ask that you would give us wisdom to know when you're calling us to go and when you're calling us not to, that you would direct us, O oh Lord God, that you would show us your way You would lead us in the way everlasting, that you would fill us with your spirit, empower us. May we be so sure of your direction that to not go in that direction would be sin against you. Lord, we don't want to be guilty of wasting time. Time is short and we want to make the most of it. For the days are truly evil and becoming more so. May each and every one of our hearts be submitted to you. And may you show us those things we are to do, those things which we are called to do for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.